Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. Welcome to Calvary. It's good to see you. And uh, last Sunday, my wife and I were away, and uh, I'm, I know that you met, or at least I saw pictures that there were people in the building on Sunday, so I'm sure that you met. Um, in fact, I heard that Chuck did a great job, and I'm glad that Chuck Holt was able to be with us. So um, I'm glad that you were here, but it is good to be home, and uh, I'm glad that you were with us. We're having a little sound difficulty today, so I'm going to try to speak loud enough. Hopefully, you'll be able to hear it all this morning, but it is, it is always nice to, to come home and to sleep in your own bed, and it's just, uh, it's just nice to be back, so we're glad to see you this morning. We're going to continue today talking through our series in the book of Romans, and this, this idea of, of what we're learning in Romans is so important for every church, for every believer, specifically for Calvary. I think it's really critical that we understand what we're learning, going to be learning in Romans is just foundational truth that all of us, whatever side of the fence of faith you're on, you, you need to know this. You need to hear this. You need to be able to understand it, especially as believers that you're confident in it to be able to not only know it yourself, but to be able to even to share it with others. That's how important this truth is. But I also know that part of the reason this is important is we, we may need some correction along the way. There's some of the things in Romans that flies right in the face of what, we're going, what they heard in their culture, what we hear in our culture, that just, it's what we hear so often that we almost think it's true. And Romans is going to just smack us right upside the head and say, this is truth. You need to adjust some things. That's, that's kind of the, the point of what Paul is doing through this book of Romans. So it's critical. I hope that you are learning and you're just opening your heart to what God wants us to, to get. So today we come back to this idea, the power of good news. And I want us to read this, what I think to be the kind of the key of, of the book of Romans, this verse, and we're going to see it in a couple of ways today. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's the word good news, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We're talking about good news and as we've been talking the last few weeks and we'll continue uh, this morning, we're talking about good news uh, that, is, that springs from bad news. Bad news that we need to understand and we be able to appreciate because that helps us to be able to grasp how powerful the good news really is because he lays out the bad news. Before I get there, let me just share. I told you we were on vacation this week. So I, I, I brought a, a vacation photo for you to see, okay? Oh, isn't that sweet? My wife and I decided one day we're going to go kayaking, tandem kayaking, okay? What a, what a great thing. Now, there's some good news and bad news in that. Good news is it's great exercise. Bad news is you might not live through it. That's just the good, that's the truth of this matter. Because, as I don't know if you can tell, for one, we've never kayaked before, ever. That's number one. Number two, this isn't a lake or a river. This is an inlet that's you could to the right would be the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, we were in the boat. The boat things. Where people, every time a boat would come by, it would. In fact, there was a huge freighter that came by at one time, and I was. I was just. I was writing my will. I thought it was over. It was one of those kind of things. Okay, so we're, that's where we're at. We're with my son and my daughter-in-law, who they've kayaked a little bit before, at least on rivers and lakes and so forth. So we've got some experience with this. But then, of course, there's 
Millennial Sparky, the instructor who told us what to do when we go out there, right? And he makes it look so easy. You know, he's 22 and he's, he's got it all figured out. And he, in five minutes, he tells us how it's all going to work and all this kind of stuff. And boy, it sounds so easy. I mean, what could go wrong, right? I mean, what could I... And his last words, Sparky's last words to us were this. I've never seen one of these things ever tip over. I don't think they can tip over. That was I, his last words as I am standing before you today. So we get out, and within a few hundred feet of the shore, we bit off a lot more than we bargained for in this ocean current, okay? We're, we're traveling, and Sparky's instructions are not near as easy as they looked when he was doing them on the shore, right? Because when I turn that thing, it doesn't turn because these waves are moving. And so I'm starting to sweat. And I'm getting, And so we go out, and it's a two-hour cruise, right? I feel like Gilligan's Island, right? I just didn't know if we could... Because it's a two-hour cruise, and so we're doing this two, so about 45 minutes to an hour, we have worked and worked and worked, and we've headed out an hour away from the shore. So we've got to turn around and come back. I, no one told me it's harder coming back than it was going in because now we're fighting the waves and I'm, and I'm doing everything. If you can notice on this, I think it, my wife's posing for a glamour shot. Do you notice? And I'm doing all the work. Okay, do you notice that? Okay, that j- not saying, I'm just, just pointing out an obvious fact there. But anyway, here's where, we're, now we're coming back to shore. The waves are coming harder. And if you ever stop, what you just did pushes you back. I didn't think we were ever going to get up there. And then I couldn't, I couldn't tell where we were. It all, it's just water. It all looks the same, right? My son and daughter-in-law, they head for the shore because they think it's going to be easier there. They turn their boat over. <laughs> One of those unturnoverable boats, they ended up upside down and they had to get out. My wife, Shell and I just keep, we paddled and paddled and paddled. We, it had to be days. I mean, we were just moving and moving and moving and moving. And finally, I see something that looks familiar and we just head for that spot. We turn around the corner and there's the shore. I don't know how long we were out there. I, I have no idea, but we finally made it to shore. We, we get down, we kiss the ground, all those kind of things, and we get over, everything's packed. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to be using on that thing for sermons in the near future. Specifically, if you're having marriage problems, this is not the next thing you want to do, okay? This is not good marriage therapy, I'm just saying. It looks good, it's not, right, okay? Some of those things, but there's a lot of things, and this is the one I want us to grab for today. What I learned about the waves is waves are no respecter of persons. Shell and I had no experience. My son and Donald had quite a bit of experience, but I promise you, when you hit those waves, they were in charge. And they were no respecter of how good you thought you were on these kind of boats. We get to Romans chapter number two, is where we're at today. If you were with us two Sundays ago, the last part of chapter one was a pretty heavy passage of scripture talked about the downward spiral of a culture, of a society. And it was a lot of hard stuff that we talked about as we ended up chapter number one. And, and what we find now as we investigating the bad news of the human race that will help us understood, understand the good news of God's gospel. Why is the God's gospel so wonderful and so powerful? Well, when you understand how bad the human race is and the sin that, that, is, that is plaguing us, the sinful condition is so awful, then it helps the good news just come to this glorious light. And that's where we're going to talk today. But what we're going to find is God, through Romans starting in chapter 2, He's going to show us how he levels the playing field when it comes to sin. And he's going to put us all in the same category. Look at the first few few words of chapter 2, verse number 1, Romans. He says this, You therefore have no 
excuse. I want to stop there because that's a very important little phrase. The word therefore, as we've said already this, in this passage, and we say it a lot, is therefore always is something that connects. It's connecting the context from, from usually right before and, and right after, and it, it's bringing everything together. Something you've just learned, it kind of ties it together. And, and though there's some debate about this one, I think it fits very well. Because of that next phrase, there's no excuse. Now, that word no excuse by definition means you're not able to defend yourself. You're guilty and you have no way to say, I'm not. I mean, you just have no excuse for what has been done. But that particular phrase, that exact word, is only used two times in the New Testament. Once here and once we've already seen it in Romans chapter number 1, which I think starts this whole passage, verse number 18 of Romans chapter 1. He says, remember, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. All those who re- re- deny God, it's, it's all, the wrath of God is real. And notice what he says in verse 20. So that people are without excuse. Same word. There's no excuse. So what Paul is doing here is chapter 1, he's, he's showing the people that they plainly saw God and they say, we don't want to believe in God, we don't want to follow him. They're without excuse because God made himself clear. Well, Paul's now introducing a new group of people. But the new group of people have the same problem. They also have no excuse. You, therefore, he said, have no excuse. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, as we, we ended up chapter 1, I want to go back and, and read a few of those verses. And I want to point out another word that kind of helps us tie into chapter 2. As you get to the, from starting in verse 21, but I want you to notice as you're reading this word, they. Because it just kind of shows itself. Because I want to show you why. He starts in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove of those who practice it. Now, why is that? That is a significant thing. And let me show you how this ties into chapter 2. What's interesting is that word they, Paul is now, he's introducing to a new crowd, but he's kind of doing something that, that we're very familiar with. And, and let me show you what, what, what we do. When you use the word they in this context, it's this kind of comfy little zone. Because it's really easy to talk about they. We have this rule in our life groups, guidelines. Remember, those of you in life group, one of the things is use I statements. Now, why do we use I statements? Because it's very easy to talk about what they think, what they believe, what they did. Oh, they have this figure. I heard they said this. How many have ever heard somebody say, well, they say that you're supposed to, you know, eat kale at every meal, right? They say that you never discipline your kids. They, and, and the question is, who in the world is they, right? Because you can get real general when you're talking about they. So why we say use I statements is it gets a lot more personal when you have to say, but what I think, what we believe, what I think, composed, and so when you get personal, so I want you to notice what Paul does. Paul takes this they, and he turns it into something, something different. Verse number two and verse one again, let me read it, but I want you to tell what he does to the they. He now says, you, therefore, have no excuse. 
you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul has turned the they into a you. He has turned this all the way, because all that we're talking about the they, it's so easy to say they did, they, they have done. But when it's now, he's saying, he's getting personal. I remember my mom used to always say, almost after every sermon I ever heard her listen to, she would say, oh, the preacher really stepped on my toes today. How many of you ever heard something like that, right? I, every sermon, my mom had, must have had a lot of issues, I don't know. But every sermon, somebody, he stepped on her toes. Here's what Paul's going to do in this passage. He's going to step on a lot of Christian toes, a lot of religious toes. Because he's moving it from the they, this, this kind of obscure, nobody really knows who they is, to a, to a you. To a people that, that should, that he, and he makes it very, very clear. Let me show you what, what kind of happens, what I think happening, is happening here in Romans. And I almost would bet it happened a couple Sundays ago when I was preaching through those last few verses of chapter number one. Because here's what happens. You talk about they and how the depravity and the sins and the things that they did, and the things that they do, and the way that they live, and they're in this downward spiral, and, and we, th- we start saying things like, how could they do such things? How could people do that? How could they act? And, and this is, and, and I, I don't think you're going to find this in the dictionary, but you hear this kind of almost this, this, this congregational, and you, I know you've heard it, I don't know how to spell it, but I'll give it an idea, when they cross their arms and go, Hrumph. You ever, you ever heard that? I spelled H-R-M-P-H. I don't know, okay? But it's just, you, they sit down and you hear this, hrumph. Because now you're looking at all those bad people. Hrumph. How could they do that? They're so wicked. They're so depraved. They're so, they're so bad. They're, I, I would never. Hrumph. That, that's what I think Paul was dealing with, and that's what we deal with honestly a lot of times when we sit in a church service just like this. We get very easy at pointing our fingers at they, and Paul is now going to turn the fingers back to us. Because at first, we're hrumph, those are, those are the things that they do. I guarantee you there were people sitting in this congregation as he's reading, as he's, they're reading chapter one, and they're going, amen, brother Paul, you preach it. You tell those heathens how bad they really are. You give it to them, Paul. Don't you be afraid now. You tell them. Paul says, okay, I will do that, but let me now flip the, flip the, the dial. We're talking about you today. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. There's a prayer phrase that I want you to see. The message puts it this way. It's very, I think it's very telling. Those people, remember the first verse, those people are a dark di- spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. Wow. Paul is Paul's going to be stomping on some toes as he marches through these next few chapters of Romans. We go back to this in the NIV again in chapter 2, verse 1. And I want you to notice he also introduces a new word here in Romans. We've talked about the wrath of God. Well, notice this new word, for whatever point you judge another. And he talks about those who pass judgment. 
This is a new word in Romans now. It's the first time he uses it. So now he's not only talking about the wrath of God, he's now talking about the judgment of God. And, and he's not, he doesn't replace the wrath. The wrath is there because of this judgment. By definition, we're talking about this judgment that's ultimately going to lead to chapter 3 and verse 19 as he ends up this, seg- this segment where he's going to say this, and every mouth may be stopped. Look at this. And all the world may become guilty before God. God is judging, and at some point, every person who's ever lived standing before God is going to have to go, I'm guilty. I'm guilty before a holy God. That's the point of these, is he's pointing out just how, where sin has, has taken us. God is literally judging. He's weighing the scales, and he's finding that, that in all, and in that, I, I use that phrase because I've heard a lot of people say something like that, that I believe when I stand before God, God's going to weigh my good works against my bad works, and I really think my good works are probably going to be heavier than my bad works, so I'm going to be okay. It's as if we think that's how God weighs things. And I want you, what we're going to learn today and through these next couple of chapters is that God is outweighing, and he's weighing your good works. But what he finds is you have no good works in God's sight. You're going to find that all of us before God stand are going to stand guilty before a holy God in and of ourselves. That's what this, this passage is all about. From chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 20, here, here's how today's theme is said like this. This court is now in session. What Paul's going to say in these next few verses is there is a courtroom and there is a judge and his name is Jehovah. This court is now in session and now presiding is Judge Jehovah of all the world. And in this judgment, he's going to do a few things that we can know, some important principles we can learn just right from this, this idea of this judgment of God. No, number one is that the court is in session, that God is standing in judgment of all of our sin. Number two, we're going to find out that there is only one qualified judge, and I'm not it, and neither are you. There is only one that's qualified that has the authority and the ability to judge the sins of others, and that's God. None, we, we, don't have that, we don't have that authority, that ability. It, it's, it's about who God is. But the third thing we're going to see is that each one of us, some point, will stand before that judge. Every person in the world is going to stand before God, the judge. And there's a lot of things that make a difference of whether that's going to be a good experience or a bad one. Everyone will stand before the judgment of God. Now, just like the wrath of God was not a popular subject, the judgment of God, today's culture, is not popular as well. Because, again, wh- who, why would God judge me? I, I, and that's where Paul now is going to judge. By the word judgment, by definition, means to distinguish, to separate, to distinguish good from evil, to, to put it into separate piles, to look and say, this is good, this is not. And when he looks at our lives, he makes this judgment, which ultimately leads to the, the results, the condemnation. And what he does in this first chapter is he says, I am the judge, and he immediately ref- removes all the imposters. Here's what you could do. You could go right now on Amazon and buy yourself a black robe. You could even buy a powder white wig and buy yourself a gavel and you could stand up here and say, I am the judge and you could do what, but here's the point God's making. You can't do that. You're not the judge. Your your standards are not what you or anyone else is going to be judged by. There is a judge. His name is Jehovah, and that's what this court is now in session. He, He tells us, you therefore have no excuse. 
you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So who is this you that Paul's talking about? Well, let's look in context, first of all. Find out who he's talking about here in Romans. We, we see them introduced in verse number 9, but verse 17, I think, gives us the clearest idea when he says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God. So in, encompassed, he's talking about specifically in that congregation of people, there were, there were Jews and Gentiles. It was a mixed congregation. But there obviously were some Jews who were standing in the seat of Harumph, the holy Harumph seat, right? They were sitting in the seat of, of judgment over others based on the mere fact that they were Jewish. This was a, a part of the culture. Here's what we find kind of interesting, that he's, he's basically saying, when he's talking about the, chapter, the end of chapter 1, most people, probably them included, thought he was talking about the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. They, they referred to them as, as, as lesser than, than human in the sense that of their relationship to God. They had no, they, they, the Jews felt they had no status before God. So when, when Paul's making ch- chapter 1, 18 through 32, and he's talking about that downward spiral and all the sin, and they're going, yes, Paul, you tell them. You tell those Gentiles about it. And, and you, there's this group that's, that's literally saying that. But here's what the Jews actually believe. And you can look in historic writings and find that some of their teachers were actually teaching the fact that the Gentiles, they were doing all this stuff and they deserve judgment but the Jews however because we're God's chosen people because we're special that even if we do some of the same things not only will we never be as bad as they are but God will kind of overlook some of what we do They'd actually set up where they had this kind of national get-out-of-hell-free card, right? This kind of this, this, we get a free pass on sin compared to the Gentiles. And so you see this group, and they're looking over as Paul's saying, yes, you tell them, Paul, because we Jews, we don't, we don't have to, we're not under the same judgment as these vile Gentiles. And so when Paul looks at these self-righteous people, and he says to them, you, who are you to judge? You have no excuse. You've got to understand that he kind of raised, he stepped on a few toes. He started raising some of the, 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 the ackles of some of the people because what they say today, what they said then was that we are better than or we really, and so you say, so how, most of us in this room, most of us in this room would not have a Jewish friend that you even know by first name basis. Some would, but most wouldn't. We're not living in first century Judea. So how does this passage then apply to us? And here's what we find that I think is even right here in, in Taylorville, Mid-America, United States, is that one of, the most, one of the most condemning parts of what we do as a culture is we have set up this idea that because a person is good and nice, or because I'm a, I do good things. When, when you go to some people and you say to them, hey, do, without Christ, you're a sinner and you're going to be condemned forever to hell. And they look at you and you go, you talking to me? Seriously? I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good person. Oh, I don't go to church. I don't bind all that religion stuff. But, but I'm a good, I help people. I'm charitable. I'm a nice person. And by, by saying that, they're, they're saying that I don't, I don't need this. Just like the Jews said about the Gentiles. Those are the Gentiles. Go talk to the heathen. They're the ones that need this. We're fine. 
I don't need to hear this, this stuff about God. I, I'm not perfect. I get that. But nobody's perfect. So you, you need to take your message elsewhere because we're, we're, doing, we're doing okay. And the wrath of God, here's, here's the problem. Sometimes it's really hard to see a person get saved if they don't realize they're lost. If they, have no, if they have no consciousness of the fact that they're lost, why would they care if they need to be saved? And that's what we find in our culture is a lot of folks have, have morally doing the moral thing, but they have yet to understand the difference of what God, the fact that some of us, even as Christians, talking about friends would say, oh, he's a good guy. If there's anybody going to heaven, it's got to be them, regardless of the relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've set this kind of arbitrary standard of what, it, what we think, what, that's, what it, that's what it means, and that's what it looks like. And, that, and that's very similar to what we have, what we have going. I, I found a cartoon this week that kind of illustrates, I think, where we're at. <laughs> Standing at the pearly gates, and whoever that is, Peter, I guess, says, don't sweat it, we grade on a curve. You, you know what a curve is, right? You, you, the example, like when you're in school, the bell curve you got your low performers and your high performers, and you got the average performers, which that's, that's most of the people. So what we did when we were in college, they threw out the, the highest score and they threw out the lowest score so that we all kind of met in the middle, right? And it has this kind of an idea that, that, that that's, that's and, and honestly, there are some who kind of believe that. Let me show you what I, what I mean by that. There are some who would, would look at people who do all the Romans 1 stuff, those bad people, right? They're over here, and, and this, this is where they deserve to be, and they deserve God's wrath. And and then, of course, there's some people on this side, they're right there. They are just so holy. They know everything. They've got the Bible down and they're just the perfect people, right? And so we, that's them and that's them. And we're all just kind of comfortable right here in the middle because we're, we're kind of good people. And, and it, what's interesting is everybody to your, it'd be to your left, everybody to your left, we kind of feel a little bit better then. And the farther you get right, you've got more people that you can feel better than. And the more you get over closer to this side, you got more people that you can say, at least I'm not like them. And they look at them and they say, at least I'm not there. Oh, I'm not there yet, but I'm not there. So I'm just going to kind of hang out here in the curve in the middle. And we have a culture, we have even Christians that live in that kind of, as long as I'm not there and I don't have to be here. And so I just kind of live this curve in the middle. Here's what Paul is going to teach us. And this is the best way I know to put it in these verses, is God does not grade or judge on a curve. The judgment of God is clear in this passage. It's real. The wrath of God is real. The judgment of God is real. There are those who don't see that they need it, and so Paul's going to make it very clear that this is something that every person needs to hear. Jews, that in his day, Jews, you're just as guilty of sin as the Gentiles. He's going to look at people like in our culture, in our society, socially acceptable, moral people, and he's going to say you're just as guilty as that person you consider to be the immoral, vile. That he, he takes sin and says it all puts us on the same level before a holy God. So let me march through these verses, and I want to teach you something that Paul teaches about the judgment of God and how it relates to us in this, all of us in this category, because here's whether this just helps you understand more of what the, the wrath of God and where that comes, or maybe there could be someone in this room who you're standing in that place. I'm not that bad. Oh, I may not be over here. I'm okay. As long as I, I, I really think it's going to be all right when I get there. I really think things are going to weigh out in the, the end. 
God's got a message for all of us today in some form or fashion, and this judgment will help us understand it. Five things I want to show you about God's judgment. Starting in verse number two, listen to what he says. He says, now we know, verse two, that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on, what's that last word? Truth. Now, that's a big one. The judgment of God is based on a perfect standard. It's based on truth. See, that's why none of us make good spiritual judges. Because we can't base it on a perfect standard. We don't have one. We base it on who we are and what we think and what we've learned and our perspective on life. And so when we see someone, what we judge, maybe what they're doing is right or wrong, but we can't see perfect. God has an absolute, it's based on truth, an absolute perfect standard. Us, not so much. We don't have that, that ability. A little boy I read about this week, about five years old, comes into his dad and says proudly, I am six foot tall. His dad said, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? He said, I took a stick that was about the same height as me. He said, I cut it up into six pieces. I called each one of those pieces a foot. I am now six foot tall. That's an ingenious plan, but it's not very accurate, is it? But we laugh because we do the same things in our lives. When we judge something, we judge it on our stick that we brought in. This is what we call a foot. God has a perfect standard. There is such a thing as absolute truth. God has declared this is right. This is where it is. And he is absolutely clean without any mixture of error. And so God's standard, God's truth is absolutely where it always where it needs to be. Keep on reading. Verse, he continues, verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things. Let me stop there. There were people in that audience, I guarantee you, they said, wait a second, Paul. Do the same things. I don't do what they do. Those are wicked, defiled people. I don't do their stuff. How can you, how can you dare say that I do the same things as them. Guarantee he ruffled some feathers. And I guarantee I would ruffle some of yours if I looked at you at the face and said, you're just as bad as they are. You'd immediately go, oh, no, I'm not. As you keep reading, verse 1, we'd already heard it once. He says, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul, come on. You're, you're, you're missing the point. Whether I believe in a curve or not, I don't do the same things as them. How dare he? How could, we, how could he ever come to that conclusion? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why that could be true. It could be true right here in this room. Number one, if you go back and read that list that we talked about, verse 29 through 31, except for murder and hating God, I guarantee you almost every one of us in here hits all the others at some point. There was things such as greed and gossip and slander, disobeying your parents, Disobeying mom and dad, is there anyone in here who did not at some point disobey mom or dad? Come up, put your hands down. You are lying. You just broke one of the other ones just right there. Here's the truth. We've all somehow been, what, what happens is you look at that list and you think the despicable nature, and yet Paul talked about some very common things that we struggle with. So there's one thing, you're doing the same things, but let's also make it clear, James chapter 2, the, the writer says this, that if you, if you do one sin, you've broken all the law. So God doesn't look at sin like we do and say, well, here's that sin, those sins, and then here, these are some others, and he doesn't grade like that. God says that's a sin, and if you, if you sin once, you've sinned. 
He makes it very clear. He also makes it very clear throughout Scripture that you are capable of doing any of those sins. Even the most despicable, all of us have the capability within us to do any of those things. And then let's not forget what Jesus said. He took it to a whole other level. It's not just your actions, it's your heart. You look on a woman with lust, that's adultery. You hate a person, that's murder. So Jesus just elevates all of that. So we're all sitting there going, yeah, all of us have done some of the same things. And he makes it very clear that that's where it is. But still today, someone would eject. I'm just not like those people. Here's how we can do that. There's how we justify it in our heads. We sometimes, we, we are blind to our own faults. You have blind spots. You don't even see some of the things that you're doing. And maybe someone else sees them and they point them out. Maybe they don't. But you have some blind spots. And you don't even notice that you're doing some of those things or, or in, in the same vein of things. Here's another thing. Sometimes we get very forgetful. We, we forget that we've done those things. Or we just, we, it was so quick. Or we just, we, we've been so far back. We forget that we, we find this judgment. And here's what he's saying is, when, remember that old saying, you're pointing that finger, you got three pointing back at you? Remember how Jesus put it? You need to take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's. This whole thing of judging that he's talking about is this. Sometimes we're blind. Sometimes we forget that we have done some of the same stuff. We forget all of that. And here's one of the other things that we're famous at doing. We have clever new names for these things. We, 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 when we see sin in someone else's life, we're often very quick to just how repulsed we are by those things. But when their same sins are in ours, you know, they lie. I just stretch the truth. They cheat. I, I just expand my horizons. I plagiarize. They, 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 they do this, and we just have a clever way of taking what is, is sin in everyone else's lives and turning it into something. They lose their temper. And I'm just having a bad day. However we look at it, we, we tend to justify based on and what Paul is saying is, listen, you've painted this, this idea, this picture, that you are above everyone else, and he's trying to put us on the same level. Let's just, let's just be straight. We've all sinned. And most of the sins are right there in that chapter of those people that we don't have anything to do with. We've all been in that position. He's putting us all on the same level when it comes to sin. Here's how Jesus gave us a great story. Luke chapter number 18. Jesus told this story of how this plays out. There was two men that went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Tax collectors weren't liked any more then than they are today, right? But they were specifically, they were, the, they were Jews, but they were the despised Jews. Here's what the story goes. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. Here's the, here's the guy, here's the Jew. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. That's the self-righteous attitude that he's talking about. Let, I don't do that, so I'm okay with God. Jesus, Paul, make it very clear. If you keep reading in chapter 2, verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape judgment? Do you think, now based on what you know, what God considers all to be sin, whether you rename it or not, do you really think that God's going to overlook your sin? Just because it's not as bad, maybe, as some of the others, at least in your opinion? Oh, Mr. Officer, as the policeman pulls you overnight and his, his lights are flashing, 
And you go, yes, sir, I was speeding. But you know, there are worse people out there. There are drug dealers. You need to, you need to let me off and go do that because they're worse than, do you think God's really going to do that to us? Oh, God, yes, I did this and this and this. But those people are so much worse. Paul says, who are you? You to, excuse, to accuse. You have no excuse because you're doing the very same things. And here's another second principle we learned. God's judgment is inescapable. He says, they will, will you escape God's judgment? One of the major complaints against our justice system at times, not only do we, we, we think that, you know, it's, the judgment is never perfect because we're talking with human beings. I get that. But one of the biggest things that we have against the justice system is some people that do wrong get off. They don't, they don't get caught. Or, or if they do get caught, they get, a, they get a lawyer that can get them off on a technicality or a loophole. And, and so it just frustrates us to see that they, sh- they don't, not getting what they deserve. And I know none of us believe that someday we're going to stand before God and we're going to hire an angelic attorney that's going to find a loophole in God's law. I know that we don't believe that, but sometimes we live like that. God, I, it's not so bad. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I get that. But at least I'm not there. And so we justify this medium, this medium range. Or people say that I, I'm good enough or, or I, I think I'm going to make it because I'm not as bad as as those people. Go back to chapter 2, and verse, at the end of verse 3. Do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? And then verse 4, notice what he says. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience? Do you think you're going to escape? Or do you just, you just the King James says, do you despise the goodness of God? I stopped here because that middle word is really, really big. It, another word that we use for that in the English, the word forbearance, The word in English we use today is the word tolerance. Boy, tolerance in our culture is a big hot button. You've got to be tolerant. However, the the definition of tolerance by modern standards is not the same as that. The definition of tolerance today is you have to tolerate everything whether you agree with it or not. And And you must just be willing to accept all things, and that's tolerance and so is that what we're saying, that God is just tolerant and he looks at certain things, even if they're awful, and he says, oh, well, it's just not, so, that's, that's not at all what this means. What he's saying is tolerance in this, this category is, a, is an idea that God is being patient. He's actually allowing people time so that ultimately they still have an opportunity to receive a salvation of their sin. It's talking about his patience and his kindness. In fact, look at the next phrase in that same verse. And they're not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The fact that you may be someone we know or you yourself may be enjoying a sin and it's not bothering you and that doesn't mean, and you're, you're still moving along, it doesn't mean, one, that God agrees with it or that God is condoning it or that God is powerless to change it. What it means is God is giving you time to repent. And the fact that you're still here and that his wrath hasn't just taken you out, it's, it's showing that God is being patient and his love is giving you an opportunity. At, at the, the Bible calls it a space to repent, a time to repent. But look at verse number five. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, look at this next phrase. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's a third thought about God's judgment. God's judgment is cumulative. It it piles. 
It's like when you talk about grades, that your cumulative GPA is what your, your grades have been throughout your history of education, right? He's talking about those who, who just they stubbornly say, I don't need this thing of salvation. I'm not that bad. And, and God's con- grace continues to let you. It's supposed to be leading you to repent of your sins. And yet you say, I don't need it. I'm stubborn. And he says, what's happening is all that sin is piling. It's storing until there's going to be a day when God's wrath, you will experience what, what you know to be. It's, it's storing up. It's cumulative. It's coming back to itself. That, that when we see that God has not done it yet. And that so we say we must got away with it or it's not happening. And God's saying, no, I want you to repent. I'm giving you a space. But every time that you don't, it just stores up. It just builds up the wrath that ultimately will come. And then he continues in verse number six. And he says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. The fourth thought about God's judgment is God's judgment is based on a person's actions. The reason that it's storing up is because God sees what you do, and he's going to explain that that you will be repaid for everything that you have done. Now remember, this this passage is about judgment of sin. So as I read it, let me just, the, the next few verses, he goes on to say, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now remember, we're talking about God's judgment. There are some people, though, that get confused in this passage. So is Paul teaching that if you do good, that that that's how you get eternal life? That as you do good, ultimately God's going to give you eternal life? Remember, there's a couple things here. God's talking about judgment. He's talking about that all that we do and how that piles our judgment. What he's talking about here is if you can persist in good works. That means he's not talking about just doing some good things. It means being perfect. If you can be perfect, and not just perfect now, but perfect perpetually. If you have never sinned and you never will sin, if you could do that. But there's only one person that's ever done that. And that was Jesus Christ. What he's telling us here, if, if, if you're as you look in judgment and God has this ability to see everything that you've done and he's saying, if you, if you could persist in that that's, and, and be perfect, then that would be fine. But, but it also is telling us as Christians, even as we move past this, uh, this understanding that we don't even do good because we, we, we can do it. God empowers us once you have accepted Christ. So what he's saying is even good works are an evidence that you have received Christ, that he is changing you from the inside out. If you, you have eternal life, if your life is showing a change and showing a difference, what he's telling us here, God's judgment is real, and it's based on what we do, and that's why it's piling up, it's accumulating, and unless something takes care of that, it will, it will ultimately put us under God's wrath. And there's one final thing, verse number 11, very powerful ending to this passage, for God does not show favoritism. There's no partiality, one version says. There's no respect of persons, the King James says. There's no favoritism. God's judgment is impartial. Now, you got to understand, that's good news and bad news. God's judgment is impartial. That's, that's good news in that everyone's equal. There's none of us that are, are worse off than others, but it's also impartial, meaning that we don't get away with anything. 
It's impartial in the sense that God's judgment is against all wickedness and all ungodliness, all sin. If you go back to verse number 9 and 10, which we just read, he uses a phrase, there will be trouble and distress for every human. But notice this phrase, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's very interesting what he's trying to tell us. This passage is a challenge for us to understand that that there, there's all of us. There are some people that would, they would find themselves right here in the they category and they would admit, I've got an issue. Maybe they went out of it. Maybe they don't. They, they have no problem admitting that. But then there's some right here that don't understand that their sin is what's keeping them from God and they don't understand it. That I'm not that bad. Why would it be any problem? And God is trying to say that all have sinned. All are going to be guilty before God, Jew and Gentile. He's showing us in this passage the the very impartial nature of God's judgment, that all are judged on the same category. If you are perfect by God's holy standard, then this doesn't apply to you. But for all the rest of us, Jew or Gentile, we stand under a judgment of a holy God. No matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done, sin has now leveled the playing field. But the reason I point out that phrase is because it's not the first time we've heard that phrase. As bad as this bad news is, that all of us, because of our human nature, stand guilty before a holy God, the good news is, verse number 16 of chapter 1 of Romans said, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And look at the next phrase first to the Jew and to the Gentile. The same truth, God's judgment levels the field. We're all sinners before a holy God. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. However, the good news is the gospel is powerful enough to save anyone, regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've done no matter where you've come from. The gospel, the power of the gospel to Jew and to Gentile, we're all, we're all guilty, but we all have the same opportunity of a salvation through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. I, I read a quote this week by a famous preacher named Adrian Rogers, passed away in 2005, just a powerful preacher. But I want you to hear what he said. God grades on the cross, not the curve. God doesn't look at your sin and say, well, you're not as bad as those, or you're, you're, you've been doing pretty good. All our sins have leveled us out. We're all guilty before God. But if we've received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, when he sees us, he no longer sees our sins. He sees the cross of Jesus Christ. He grades us on the cross of his son. So which takes us back to that verse again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So the question is pretty clear today, in my opinion. Have you come to a point in your life, either because you know your, your sinfulness and it's just brought you to the point of, I know I need forgiveness, or even as a good moral person, you've grown up in this moral society and you've gone to church and you've known God all of your life but has there ever been a point when you realized I am a sinner just like them and I need a savior just like them I need a 
forgiveness of my sins just like them. I'm lost because I'm guilty. Have you ever come to that point when you recognize I'm guilty before God and I need salvation? Because if you have and you have come to this verse and you realize that Jesus died and rose for me and you received his gift, God doesn't grade you on that sin or this sin or those. God grades you on what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Where do you stand today?